0: If you have a Bible, let's get to Psalm 51. As you probably know, this is one of the more famous psalms, a psalm of repentance. It's one of those psalms that has a story that goes along with it. Some of the psalms have a little introductory statement, a heading, tells us some context of when it was written, by whom it was written. And so you'll notice at the top of Psalm 51, before even verse 1, here's the heading. This was written by David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. You might want to keep your finger here in Psalm 51 and turn back to 2 Samuel 11. That's where this story begins. 2 Samuel 11 describes the sin of David and its exponentially sinful cover-up. David sees this woman bathing on her rooftop as he looks out on, well, as he looks out from his. She's beautiful, and so he has his men bring her to him, and for a night, he takes her as his own. She becomes pregnant which wouldn't cause too many public problems except for the fact that her husband is at war. He's not at home. He's not there to, shall we say, make a baby. So David tries to bring her husband, Uriah, home. But Uriah is a good soldier, noble man, and he won't lay in the same bed with his wife because his men in battle don't get to do that, so he lays on the floor now what? Well, David tells the commander of the army, Joab, to have Uriah, the husband, put on the front line of the battle where he's most likely to die, and sure enough, he does. He dies. Get this. News of Uriah's death comes to David, and then David tells the messenger to go back to Uriah, not to Uriah, to Joab, the commander, with this encouragement. it's 2 Samuel 11, verse 25, David's encouragement to, to Joab after Uriah was put on the front line, taken out almost immediately. Do not let this matter bother you. For the, for the sword devours one, and now another. Just accidental. It just happens. It's part of war. Of course, we know differently. So hugely understated is that last verse of 2 Samuel 11. Notice it. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Understatement, huh? And apparently David thinks that he's managed to slip through this debacle unscathed, right? Bathsheba knows, but Uriah didn't. No one else does. And so he brings her as his own, and the child he treats as his own. But then 2 Samuel 12 begins with the prophet Nathan coming to the king to confront this sin. We don't know how Nathan knew of this sin, but perhaps by divine revelation, God told it to him. He knows. And so he tells a story, a parable. He tells a story about a guy who has a lot lot of sheep and then another guy in the kingdom who has one sheep. The guy with lots of sheep went and took the one sheep from the poor man. And David is enraged. David thinks there's injustice in his kingdom. Who is this rich guy who's hoarding and stealing sheep and taking from the impoverished my kingdom? Who is the man? Nathan says, "You are the man, O king." David responds, This is second Samuel 12 in verse 13. Very brief confession, "I have sinned against the Lord." It looks small, but at least it's acknowledgement. Then Nathan says, this very same verse, The Lord has put your sin away. Wow. So much sin, drawn out probably over so many months. The story, a parable of confrontation, a roundabout way of getting to the very confrontation. And then... The most important part, it seems, the con- the confession and the salvation or the forgiveness is dealt with so quickly. I've sinned against the Lord. The Lord has put away your sin. Well, Psalm 51, go back there if you had turned to 2 uh, Samuel. Psalm 51 exper- experientially unpacks those two brief statements. One by... One by David, I've sinned against the Lord. The other by Nathan, the Lord has put your sin away. Psalm 51 is a page ripped from a tear-stained journal. A journal of one of the Bible's most complicated figures. Most of us know David as a man after God's own heart. It says so in the next chapter, 2 Samuel 13. Couldn't it equally be his slogan his banner a man after a lot of ladies right i mean he was known for so many women he even was known for this bathsheba episode the sin man after god's own heart it's true it's in the bible but he was a man after a lot of other things as well at times you could say he's a, a man who was mighty in battle and mighty on his throne And you might remember from passages like 2 Samuel 1 through 6 that he was a man who was a coward in his home. So it's a personal account of this complicated figure, a personal account of repentance and confession and prayer and faith and trust and restoration. It's not just a personal account, but it's a model example for us of this. And it's a model example, not just for Christians who find themselves in their in their worst episode of sin, right? That one thing they look back to in their 90s and say, "Ah, oh, I know He's forgiven me, but I wish I hadn't." It's not just for Christians in that one epic of sin, but for Christians in everyday sin, in a sense, because it shows us the basics of repentance and confession and. Faith and trust and joy in our salvation. And it's not just a description of Christians dealing with their sin and giving it to God and finding hope and restoration. Isn't it also a good example of what we call conversion? In other words, if you're not a Christian, Psalm 51 is a good window into what we Christians all experienced at one time. Not that we did David's sin, But at some point, we came to realize our sin. We came to call out to a Savior, believe that we've been rescued, redeemed, forgiven, and restored. So it's a good description for conversion. And it's a great description of continual Christian repentance, that ongoing cycle, at least until heaven, that ongoing cycle of sin and sorrow, confession, prayer, hope, reappropriating assurance, We can think of Psalm 51 in three parts. The first is David's cry of repentance. A cry of repentance. Verses 1 to 2 really summarize the whole psalm. Let me read those. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That summarizes the whole, but really the... Repentance part gets, gets really good, gets focused at verse 3. Verses 3 through 6 is the cry of repentance. And there David says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart let 's just go through some of those phrases. He says his sin is ever before him in verse three, in other words it 's emblazoned on his on his brain, on his memory, on his conscience. he keeps replaying the sin he lives with this feeling in his gut of anguish he says in verse 4 that his sin is against God and against God only a peculiar way of putting it because he sinned against Bathsheba in many ways he sinned against Uriah her husband in many ways he sinned against Joab the commander by putting him in that position He sinned against his own family, David's own family. He sinned against Bathsheba's whole family. Think of her kids. Think of the consequence of the sin in taking the child that was born of Bathsheba and David. David sins against the whole nation in a sense. He sins against the covenant that God's made with his people in a sense. He stole, he adulterated, he murdered, he lied, he abused his authority. And all those sins are against people. Those are horizontal sins in many ways. And yet he says, Against you and you only have I sinned to God. Is that right? Yes. It's right because all sin is first and foremost against God. He's God, He's the lawgiver, and proof. That our sin is a problem with Him is that we need forgiveness from Him. If I went up to you and said, Hey, I forgive you, and you think, For what? You might think, I know something. I know the way you talk about my sermons at the lunch table. (laughs) Busted. You all do it, I know. But I don't know anything, right? You know I don't know anything, and what do you mean you forgive me? It doesn't make any sense. What if I said, I forgive you for you hitting that guy at work? What? I hit him, not you. What do you mean? Forgiveness means that someone's been sinned against. And yes, David needs to ask forgiveness to Bathsheba and to Joab and other people for sure. But he says rightly, he sinned against God and against God only. Because God is the lawgiver and God is the forgiver. And he says what he's done is evil in verse 4. Verse 1, he calls it transgressions. Verse 2, he calls it iniquity. He calls it my sin in verse 2. The prophet Nathan said in 2 Samuel 12 that David had despised the word of the Lord in his sin. You see all these different ways of describing sin? It's evil. It's transgressing, going against what God has said it's iniquity it's brokenness it's flippidness turning things upside down it's his sin he owns it nathan says it's despising god's word every sin is in a sense despising god's word and hence david says that god's judgment of his sin look at verse 4 of the words there they're His his judgment is justified, and he's blameless in it. See those words? Judgment of David's sin is justified and blameless. In other words, David is not justifying his sin. He's not justifying himself. He's saying, God is right to throw me to the back wall of the universe, then down into hell. He's not justifying self. Instead, he's justifying God. God is right even to take the child. And he acknowledges where the root of all this sin comes from. It's passed on from generation to generation. Remember that in verse 5? I was brought forth in iniquity. It doesn't mean he was an illegitimate child. It doesn't mean his mother was a worse sinner than others. It means that he was born a son of of Eve. He was born in this human race that's fallen. So David here isn't blaming his sin away, but he isn't just thinking that this is accidental, that this is not normal, or that, that it was a, a mess up. It was a, a period of lacking discretion. He knows where it comes from not the circumstances. What was I supposed to do? I was on the roof. She was there. She should know better. I can't be put in that kind of temptation and not follow through with it. I'm the king. He doesn't do anything like that here. He may have at first, but he knows that the sin problem is far from limited to this one sequence of sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. No, his big, bad sin story reflects what's always been in his heart and it reflects the universal problem of everyone born of Eve. He also acknowledges that God requires truth, verse 6, in the inward being. God requires it even in the secret heart. Obedience can't be just external. God is the one who searches our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our motives better than we know. And so it's a gutsy thing to pray what David prays elsewhere. Search me and know me, O God. See if there be any secret fault within me. We all need to pray that more than we do, don't we? Search me. Try me, O Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. It tells us that sin is deceptive. Well, that's the cry of repentance. But notice, secondly, was a cry for redemption. Redemption. Or you could call it mercy, a cry for mercy, a cry for cleansing, a cry for forgiveness. We saw it already in verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Then look also at verse 7. There he says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a branch used by the Old Testament priests to go and put a mark on the house of a house that had been previously unclean, condemned. You can't touch it. A house that's unclean would eventually be declared clean. Hopefully so. And when it was declared clean, they would take this hyssop branch and put a mark on it saying, it's all good. So David's clarifying that for us by saying, we know the priest's hyssop branch really does nothing. He's calling on God to bring his giant hyssop branch down to declare him clean clean. To wash me, he says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then verse 9, another way of putting it. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Look at all the different ways of describing forgiveness. Mercy. Abundant mercy. Transgressions being blotted out like A bucket of paint poured on top of a a piece of paper with writing on it. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. Purge me. Make me whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Turn away from them. Blot out my iniquities. You might remember that David did something similar in Psalm 32. There he gave three different ways to describe sin. Three different words. All with their own implication or meaning or connotation. Then he gave three different ways to describe his confession. And then he gave three different ways to describe God's salvation. To tell us that our confession needs to be total, right? We need to realize our sin in total, confess it in total. But God's salvation is, is enough. It meets it. It covers it. God's forgiveness is full and free for those who truly repent and believe those who lean on his steadfast love like David does. Remember verse 1, he gave a basis, claimed a basis for God's mercy and forgiveness and his sins being blotted out according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Pleads, he appeals to God's character, doesn't he? God's promises, God's ways the way God's revealed himself in his word, not not appealing to God on the basis of his good intentions or that he's better than others or that he didn't really mean it. No, he has no hope but God's love and that his love will be steadfast, that his mercy will be abundant and not stingy. Well, the third R word in Psalm 51 is a cry for restoration. There's a cry of repentance. There's a cry for redemption or mercy. And then there's a cry for not just redemption, but restoration. In other words, his request is not just for the removal of guilt, but all the implications that should come with the absence of guilt. The inward and outward implications. I think there are at least five different kinds or areas of restoration that David talks about here in Psalm 51. Starting in verses 10, he talks about assurance in verse 10. That's the first one, assurance. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And when he says that, I don't think he means create a clean account Forgive me. Remove it. I don't think it's another forgiveness description. I think it's a conscience description. Treat me a clean heart. I don't want to just be clean. I want to feel clean. And then there's another cry for restoration, the one for joy. Joy. Look at verse 8. He says, Let me hear joy and gladness that accompanies forgiveness. Let the bones that you've broken in your your careful and merciful conviction, you've broken my bones, now let them rejoice. Not just healed, but rejoicing. Happy bones. I mean, who talks like that? I want to be happy in my marrow today. That's what David's praying for. I want my bones to shake with joy today salvation joy like that and of course in verse 12 we know this phrase if you've been in church for a while he says restore to me the joy of my salvation restore to me the love the the confidence in the appreciation for humble gratitude for your salvation lord make me to know that joy like I've known before, and I'm sure he means even more so. Have you at one point in your life been more impressed, more in awe, more thankful, and more happy about God's salvation in Christ than you are now? Well, pray. Pray with David. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Another implication here, another cry for restoration is one for perseverance. In the second half of verse 10, he says, Give me a new spirit, a renewed spirit. Put that within me. And then verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Some have thought this to be sort of like an Old Testament anomaly no one could ever pray something like this these days in the new covenant because the holy spirit's been given to us he dwells in our hearts he, we know god's presence won't be taken away from us some of that's true but i don't think that's it's wrong to pray what david prayed in verse 11 i don't think we should think about the differences between old testament and new testament holy spirit dwelling as we look at verse 11 When he says, cast me not away from your presence, he's saying, keep me. Don't forsake me. Don't throw me aside. We call it the doctrine of perseverance. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Let your calling and your election remain sure what you've started in me. Please keep and prosper and bring to completion until the day of Christ. Or as he puts in verse 12, the end of verse 12, Uphold me with a willing spirit. Uphold me and make me willing. Give me perseverance and preserve me. Another one of these things of restoration or kinds of restoration is proclamation. Look at verse 13. Here his prayer request is, then I will teach transgressors your ways and your sinners will return to you. Uphold me with a willing spirit, is how verse 12 ends, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Proclamation. I don't want to just be saved. I don't want to just be happy. I don't want to just persevere. But I want to be saved and happy and persevering as I proclaim, as I help sinners, sinners like me. You see, of course, David's not talking here about theoretical, impersonal, and unpainful kind of proclamation, where he just goes around saying, hey, you know God is merciful, right? Here's the covenant. You should believe in Him. You should trust in Him. You should be one of us. You should be part of the family, He's talking about using his own painful story. I think Psalm 51 is proof of that. I mean, this guy published a song about his most heart-wrenching repentance. Psalm 51 is the fulfillment, you could say, of David doing what he said in verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David speaks even though he's dead. He speaks still through God's word. Perhaps even now, transgressors will be taught God's ways and they will turn to him. But then there's also praise. There's praise here at the the end of our section. Anyway, we won't deal much with the last few verses, but verses 14 and 15. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Forgive me. In other words, deliver me. O oh God of my salvation. And, I think he means then, then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So he wants to be forgiven. He believes God will forgive him. And he describes God's forgiveness several different ways. He wants not just the reality of forgiveness, but the assurance and the confidence of assurance. He wants to feel his freeness and guiltlessness. He wants to be joyful about it, happy, his bones smiling. He wants to press on, persevering. He wants a new spirit within him, being upheld, yes, for his final salvation, but also... Upheld so that he's useful for the Lord, proclaiming God's ways, getting sinners to turn to him, and praising God through it all, praising God for forgiveness and for all of the many blessings that flow with it, the restoration that comes with it, the joy that comes, the mission that comes with it. Really, a summary is verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, like the hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. We bring nothing to the table except a broken spirit. Isaiah 55 says... Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come. You who have no money, come and buy without money, without price. Such a grand welcome. Huge invitation. Such a wonderful welcome mat. And yet there are two qualifications. that We come thirsty. We come knowing we have no money. No spiritual money. We have only a broken spirit. That's the thirst. A broken and contrite heart. Now let me as quickly as possible summarize all this by mentioning some false substitutes for repentance. By repentance, I mean, I should have defined this earlier, I mean verbalizing, confessing to God the ugliness of our sin and the hopelessness of our state apart from his mercy. That's repentance. But there are all kinds of ways in which we cheat it. But stamp it, repentance. Sometimes we just make it right. Try to fix it. We try to make amends with people, which may not be wrong, maybe it's even necessary. But remember, sin is not primarily horizontal. So you can clean your conscience by fixing it with somebody and never talking to the lord about it don't confuse the horizontal and the vertical but learn from david against you and you only have i sinned sometimes we confuse repentance for simply getting something off our chest confession itself doesn't cleanse doesn't do anything even though people talk like this today Sometimes Christians, but of course the world talks like this a lot, that you feel better about something bad if you just tell somebody, a friend, or maybe even God, or a priest. But as long as you just got it off your chest, you feel better. Great. It's cathartic. It's good to be honest about what was for a while hidden. But that's not repentance. It's not repentance doesn't mean real guilt has been taken care of. Remember, the problem is not just our feelings of guilt, though David does address that, and rightly so, but his feelings of guilt are rooted in truth, the truth of his real guilt. The problem is one of guilt, hence the feeling of guilt. So the solution is not just feeling better about our guilt, but we need a solution to our guilt. We need repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Sometimes we trust in repentance as a work. You do it and it gets you favor with God, especially if you if you really do good at it, right? You feel bad enough and he'll have mercy. Don't we sometimes parent like this, right? They look genuinely remorseful afterwards. And normally you would give discipline for this sort of thing, but there's enough sorrow without the discipline that you go, eh, all right, good enough, go on, you're fine, big hug, all right, I love you. And at times there is nothing wrong with that in parenting. It's just not how God operates with our eternal state. We can't trust in repentance as a work or a payment. We can't think of it as penance. It's not something you do to pay a payment off. Sometimes our repentance is really rooted in pride. We feel bad because we failed. We feel bad because we failed, because we think too highly of ourselves. Do you ever have that kind of remorse after sin? You're mad at yourself for a day. It looks like contrition. It probably feels like contrition to you. Maybe for years you've confused it as repentance. It's not. It's pride. It's anger. It's resentment with self. It's regret, but it's inward focused and not upward focused. Sometimes we say or think that we're repentant, but there's no change whatsoever and there's been no change for a long time. The sin is routine. The grooves of that habit are deep. And so maybe for some, you really don't even plan on changing anything while you fool yourselves, fool yourself into thinking that your apologies to the Lord are legitimate. Sometimes we try to trump up or fake repentance. Try to really get it going. Work up some tears, you know. Poke your eye and think of a dead dog or something. You can't fake repentance. It's like you can't fake true compassion or love for people. You can't fake true worship. You can't fake repentance. So when you know it should not only be present, but it should be painfully present, like Psalm 51 kind of repentance, and you don't have it, you need to pray for it. You need to work towards it. You need to get yourself there as best as you can knowing the Lord grants repentance, so that's why you keep praying for it. But it needs to be real and deep and thorough and heartfelt. That's what we should be after. We should realize that that doesn't come easily. Not in our own doing, and also because God has to give it, and sometimes He takes some time to give it. Mysteriously so. Sometimes we deal with our sin by minimizing the guilt downplaying it sometimes we instead of the other side of the coin maximize the guilt thinking that god's grace isn't greater than our sin and so we live in a season of sorrow we stay in repentance if you can call it that it's not repentance because true repentance doesn't stay in remorse in self-condemnation repentance has another side of the coin always or it isn't repentance that's why throughout Acts, these two words always go together, repentance and faith. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, talks about two different kinds of sorrow. Godly ge- grief, Paul says, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without grief. You hear that? Salvation. We you know that. Repentance leads to Salvation. Paul says it leads to salvation without grief. The sorrow is supposed to end. Sometimes it doesn't come quickly, so pray. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Make these bones smile with your saving joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief produces death. Godly, I'm sorry, worldly grief produces death. But godly grief, is a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In other words, gospel guilt is true, and it's honest, and it's deep, and it drives us back to the cross, and it results in joy. God is interested not just in your salvation, but in your experience of salvation, your feelings of being saved. Oh, it's all over the place. I wish we could begin a new message right now where we'd go to the New Testament. And I'd show you all of the, the verses describing the feelings of salvation. That the Holy Spirit, for one, is, is in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Like a little testimony, like a little whisper in your ear. You're His. You're a son. You're a daughter of the King. It's all over the place. God's salvation in Christ addresses our guilt and our feelings of guilt, but it's a a fight for both of those to match up because our guilt is dealt with decisively, immediately, emphatically, completely at conversion. But our sense of guilt is dealt with truly, substantially, considerably, And it doesn't mean that we won't struggle with doubt or guilt. It's not complete. Our sense of forgiveness isn't complete until we're in the new heaven and the new earth. So we come tonight to a celebratory meal of God's forgiveness. A picture of Jesus dying in our place where the judgment was put on him instead of us. In the beginning of the service, I read from Romans 3 that we're declared righteous as a gift. It's a gift of grace, Paul says in verse 24. It's on the basis of Jesus dying as a quenching of God's wrath. He experienced God's wrath on our behalf. And there had to be payment... There had to be propitiation because God is righteous. And Paul says for many millennia there, God was passing over sins like David's, doing nothing about it, letting it go. All he was looking for was a broken and contrite spirit. There's a little IOU written each time that was done. And Jesus came to pay for those sins and all future sins of his people. Why? So that he might both be just and the justifier. I mean, how do you forgive as a judge and be a good judge? Well, someone has to take the punishment. It doesn't work in our legal system. No one can say, I'll go to jail for him, I don't think. But in God's accounting, it works. Jesus took our sin and bore the punishment upon the cross and freely, through faith, gives us righteousness so that we're treated as sons and daughters.